Our guest today is Richard Soker. Richard is one of the world-leading AI researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors. In fact, while today deep learning is at the core of all artificial intelligence for natural language processing, deep learning initially wasn't so popular in NLP. It was largely seen as great for signal processing and computer vision and speech recognition. Richard pioneered many of the early breakthroughs showcasing the great potential of deep learning for language processing. This was back in his PhD days at Stanford for the early breakthroughs. From there, he declined actually top-tier professorship offers to found one of the first deep learning startups, Metamind. Metamind pioneered many of the early deep learning applications in the real world across language and image processing and was quickly scooped up by Salesforce. As chief scientist at Salesforce, Richard continued to lead the charge in deep learning for natural language processing and beyond, but left a couple years ago to start his latest company, U.com, which is directly taking on Google at its core business, Search. In addition, Richard is very active in fostering the AI entrepreneurship ecosystem, including as founder of AI Ventures, the AI venture capital firm, partnering top AI startups and AI practitioners, which I'm actually part of myself too. Richard, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Always fun chatting with you, Peter. Well, same here. It's really nice. Huh? to have you as a friend and now really nice that you're willing to make the time to come on the podcast. Richard, before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in SF, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, Many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of weights and biases. Well, Richard, let's dive right in. Let's start with you.com. You decided to found a company to directly take on Google at its core business, Search. Why? There's a lot of different reasons why I did that. The first one is, you know, I've worked in deep learning for natural language processing for a long time. And I thought about what the most impactful application of this technology could be. It's obviously search. And then at the same time as we've seen in the last decade, how much better natural language processing has gotten, the biggest application of it has kind of stagnated and if anything actually gotten worse. And it's partially because of the business model and some classic innovators dilemma stuff, but partially also just the non, like not willingness to, unwillingness to really go and use that technology the way it could be used to help people much more efficiently learn, find information, make good decisions and so on. So that was kind of one of the first reasons as we're a personal also, and I've worked a bunch in deep learning for NLP. 
and and natural language processing and i wanted it to be applied in positive ways and you know obviously at very large scale search engines have impact even on democracy and very society that we live in and so it's just a super impactful application there are other reasons you know privacy is one it's kind of sad that our privacy is getting so much undermined online when we search and then at a very macro level, you think about the entire economy moving online. And then you have the single gatekeeper at the very beginning of your online journey, whose main focus for the last 10 years has been how to sell your query to the highest bidding advertiser. And that just can't be the right setup for the internet moving forward. It needs to be more equitable. You don't want to fight convenience on that first page of the internet. So you want to be useful on that first page, but ideally everyone can kind of collaborate on that first page. And so it's one of the idea reasons we have an open platform for search apps. We'll talk about them in a little bit. But yeah, so those are three reasons. So lots of other other ones. It's just like fun. It's interesting. It's impactful. It's a reasonable business model. It's a great application of generative AI. It can kind of encompass a lot of things in the future, but you can also start with something very tangible. There's a ton of research that could be done in the future about it, but it's very very applicable and real right now for, for a lot of folks and so on. Just a lot of lot of different reasons. It's the most exciting thing I could be doing. It is very exciting to see the search pace completely light up in, in recent times. I mean, it's been very stagnant for years. What it, what it presents to you, as you said, is kind of the same as 10 years ago or sometimes worse because so many ads are being bought up against the things you search for that is hard to get to the actual information sometimes. And so there you come, you build you.com and you try to take this all on. But I mean, at the same time, didn't you think it was intimidating when you start? I mean, Google is quite the big company. Wasn't there something you know, said, well, maybe this is going to be hard? <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, fun side note on the personal side, I had this idea nine years ago that like, man, couldn't we use all the summarization technology and so on? I actually built a first build prototype and it was just too daunting at the time. And so I did a much more solid company, B2B enterprise application will obviously solve some problems for companies that are valuable. And I kind of focused on that first. And throughout that almost decade, I couldn't quite shake this idea off that this would be kind of the most interesting application. And now I've actually gone through in the last two years, a very similar deja vu moments and and you know sort of memories from when I started deep learning for NLP, which was I had some very smart professors I won't name them now at Stanford and elsewhere who said Richard you clearly have potential why do you want to use neural nets they didn't work in the 90s they're not going to work now especially not for NLP and I was like you know sometimes it's a mix of stubbornness a little bit of crazy try to be smart, try to have some impact and, and kind of acknowledging it's going to be a high variance endeavor. It's either going to spectacularly fail or it's going to spectacularly work well. And I'm not going to give up until I get the second outcome and then I'm just not going to accept defeat. And there is certainly a lot of defeat like in the beginning of U.com, also as in the beginning of my PhD, there's just, you know, in the beginning of the PhD, a lot of rejected papers. A lot of reviewers are like, why are you submitting a neural network paper to an NLP conference. They just flat out rejected it without even reading it after we abstract. I'm like, wow. 
it, it's crazy. I should try to pull out some of these old emails. And, you know, there some are publicly in archives. There's a paper from one of our last papers, review from one of our last papers of DECA NLP, where we try to build a single joint model for all of NLP. And the paper got rejected publicly on, you know, ICLR. So the reviews are public and you can read the reviewer comments of like, why do you need to ever have a single model for multiple different NLT tests? That makes no sense. And so, so there's a lot of rejection of that. And you just kind of have to have be a little bit of combination of stubborn and, and crazy and just keep at it and not give up. And similar things happen with view.com. When we, when we started the search engine in the summer of 2020, in the middle of the pandemic and the wildfires and stuff, a lot of folks also said, man, Richard, you like, you can do all of these different things of all the applications you want to work on of AI, like why, why search? The space is dead. No one cares. It's not going to make any progress. Google is this monopoly. No one can like even touch it and so on. And I think that was true actually nine years ago when I built my first little prototype, but it wasn't true anymore. And it was just too obvious that you can do better. And so, so yeah, I guess it is daunting. I'm not going to lie. It's scary. Startups are sort of fragile little flowers, you know, too much sun, too much light, too much rain, and and they die. And so you have to be very careful in tending them. And it is quite stressful, but it's also super fun. And I'm very happy I get to work on such an impactful application. And now that we have like millions of users and you actually see positive feedback online, that's even more rewarding. Of course, there are also some trolls here and there and, and some weird death threats. Like stuff happens, I guess, when you're in the consumer world, unfortunately. But most of the interactions are just super positive and that gives you energy too. Now, you.com offers many things, right? Before we get into the many things it offers, let's start with the core thing. The core thing is search, right? You can go to you.com and search the way you would type something into Google, but get a very different experience, right? Can you maybe say a little about how that experience is different and also what's happening behind the scenes to make that happen? Yeah, happy to. So it, it's easiest. So for those of you who are visually here with us, I'll share with you kind of what the biggest changes have been now with this with this demo here. So, you know, I'll walk you through here what, what we're seeing on the screen, but I can ask like, what does CRM stand for? And in our latest version of UChat, which is actually becoming default experience for everyone on U.com, you have a large language model that will tell you about, in this case, customer relationship management software with a bunch of citations and recent sources and web results on the right. And then you can ask a follow-up question like, oh, what's the biggest such company? And then it will bring up Salesforce and again, have some citations about them. And now the interesting bit is that you will actually, we're making large language models multimodal in the sense that sometimes the best answer isn't just text. It's actually an image or a graph or some interactive app or a plot or a table and so on. And so if I asked now as a follow-up question from what's the biggest such company, the answer is being Salesforce could ask what's their stock price. And then it will actually come up with a little stock widget that shows you an interactive chart and so on. And that is a much better answer than a bunch of potentially hallucinated numbers from what most large language models would generate. And then again, you can follow up question like, who's the CEO? So these are just some, it's just one example of a conversation. So that's a big change also from previous search engines. And you can use these kinds of ideas for a ton of different applications. And that's always a tough thing, to be honest, when you talk about search, because search is everything. 
Like in the beginning last year, we tried to say, let's focus only on the developers because all of search was so daunting. And uh, I jokingly say after a few months, developers are people too. They want to go outside. They want to know what the weather is. They want to know nice restaurants. They want to get driving direction. So even if you say I focus on one persona and you do what is the general sort of gold shoes mantra for startups, which is focus on a tiny niche, then dominate that niche, then expand. It is very hard to do in a search engine. That's why it's such a challenging field. You have to be good at a lot of different things before you're a viable default experience so that people on your URL nav bar actually make you a default through like a Chrome extension or installing a browser or something. And so long story short, you know, when you ask for something like Python Fibonacci direct computation function, you, you know, your old search engine will give you a bunch of blue links. Your new search engine will show you a code snippet with a copy and paste button and just answer that question. And where it gets even more exciting is with all the AI applications. So I know this is largely focused on AI. So if I ask like, can you generate an image with AI to this new search engine, u.com, it will just give you the answer, which is an AI image generator where you can then just type in whatever and it will create that kind of imagery. So those are just a few examples. At a very high level, we care at u.com about the ability to control your own sources to say, I want to see Reddit or I hate Twitter or vice versa, and then have some control over your inflammation diet. I think that's very important. You know, we're, we think a lot about our diets as people to be healthy. Turns out for our mental health, it's also important <clears throat> to think about our inflammation diet. Then, so that's number one, we care about privacy also, just, you know, not our main and only marketing thing, like one, one other search engine, but it is something that we care about. And then we want to bring the latest and greatest AI capabilities to you to make you more efficient as the user and give you control of that whole experience. So, so yeah, those are some, some of the things and it seems to be resonating. You now it's been growing like hundreds of the multiple hundreds of percent month over month. And, and yeah, it's, it's been a very exciting journey. It's really exciting and very impressive. I want to double click on something you mentioned, Richard, that there is really two big factors at play here. One is search had gotten stale, just the experience. But second, the underlying technology is dramatically different from the previous technology. And in some sense, you are two steps beyond the previous technology. There's the one step, which is like the OpenAI chat GPT released back in, in November which is a large language model that's trained on all the text on the internet that they considered for, for training. And from that statistically generates a plausible answer, which is already very different from a traditional search engine. But you're going further than that is what you're saying. Can you maybe describe what's different between this chat GPT that OpenAI released in November and what you.com is providing here? Yeah, so in, in December, we released UChat, which basically provides you all those capabilities from ChatGPT, but also gives that large language model access to the internet and the ability to look up any information from recent sources. And then if it finds that information relevant to the question included in the answer, and then also cite those sources. And it's a really tricky thing to get right, because sometimes people just ask for, write me a poem about whales. And then there is not really a citation needed from some recent sources. But sometimes they ask, like, who won the Soccer World Cup? And then, you know, New York Tom tells you how and who won it. 
and so on because it has access to the internet. And then we, we thought, you know, okay, that's just like standard web results. But sometimes the answer to you know, a question like, what's the weather? What's the stock price? What are the directions? Like those just don't really have a good textual answer. The best answer, and this is hard for me to say, I love natural language processing. You know, but I, I see this a lot in researchers who have this hammer. This happened a lot in recent years too. There was a time when finally speech recognition started to work. And I got all these companies and friends and, and others who said, oh, I want to make speech recognitions for this kind of search-like problem. This was before I started search. And I would ask them like, if you ask for a restaurant near you, is the best answer really a speech system that will then will tell you? There are 150 restaurants around you in San Francisco. The first one is 0.3 miles away and it has a 4.3 star rating and people like its pad thai and, you know, and like blah, blah, blah. And then you were like, wait for like 10 hours. No, the answer is a multimodal output. It's, it's the output to say like, here's an image, here's a TikTok video, here's a star rating and you can just quickly skim it. And if you don't like the picture of the food, you don't need to look at any of the other details. And so... I think this multimodality is something that I've loved in research too, you know, having had some of the first papers where we use neural nets to map both languages and sentence, uh, sentences of language and images into the same vector space. You can find one from the other, which started a whole host of really cool uh, follow-up work, but it's, it's really important means to search also. You've got to be multimodal, interactive in some cases. You know, the best answer for how to generate an image with AI is not a long text about how these algorithms work. It's just to let you do it. And so we're, we're very inspired by the jobs to be done framework, which is also for, for startup founders, very helpful and a framework to think about jobs to be done. And it's basically, you're thinking about any product, what are you hiring that product keeping for you? Uh, and in the case of a search engine, it's often to get things done. And sometimes the doing is just learning, but sometimes the doing is actually taking action and that's sort of where we're moving to in the future, but also what we're accomplishing now with a lot of these AI tools that let you just be more efficient. I like what you said there at the end, also moving towards action. From my background, reinforcement learning, as you know, action is at the center of reinforcement learning. I'm just imagining the conversation continuing after it shows me the restaurants. Maybe you, chat. I can tell your AI. Um, actually, I like... This, the second one on the map here or on, on the where the picture of this one's menu or something, can you go make a reservation and maybe it can just figure out how to do all the clicks and everything to, to make that happen? What do you think? I wish you needed more jobs uh, and uh, we would hire you in a heartbeat and, and get it going. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I think about you.com and our early conversations about you.com, one of the big things that you said was advertising takes up too much space in current search. Maybe it takes up too much space, maybe even shouldn't be there altogether, that, you know, but definitely shouldn't take up so much space. But the fact that it takes up so much space is also what allows Google to make money from it, right? So how do you see you.com monetize if you're going to not want to fall in that same boat in some sense of having ads everywhere? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's, you know, they're obviously stuck in a local optimum. It's a very, very lucrative trillion dollar local optimum, but 
it's very hard to get out of it. And it's because, you know, when you try to, your public company, public company, every month, every quarter, you have to, you know, show some improvements. And I can almost envision the meetings are like, people are like, okay, what are we going to do to make the Wall Street folks happy? And one guy's like, I could launch this really cool AI app. It will take three of the six ads that we have and we replace it. And it'll be like really helpful. And I, okay, so uh, half the revenue, uh, anyone else, any ideas? And it's like, instead of five ads, we have six ads. I'm like, brilliant. Let's ship that. You know, it's sort of like, I can envision the meetings there. And like at some very high level, I think at, like where we try to be different right away is one to commit to not having targeted ads. I think you know, simple ads that are based only on the query, not the person and don't follow you around the internet like crazy. I think are not as bad. And we actually see seeing, you know, that kind of privacy ad innovation from DuckDuckGo. And I think that that's one viable pass. But I think the other one is that you really have to work hard on this open app platform that we have. So this idea that anyone can contribute. So if you're a developer or a company, you can actually build your own search app. It's very easy. It's just a config file. It takes like an hour or two. And then that app can come up both within chat, but also standard search results. And you know, we're merging those two experiences more and more. And I think it's a very important part of making that entire future more equitable. And you know, at a very high level, Google has kind of worked over the last decade on what we call zero-click searches, meaning you don't leave the Google ecosystem anymore. And that is very convenient for users, right? If you get the answer right away or you can you know, swing to another question because people also ask this other thing, you go to another query... And you know, of course, for, for Google, you stay on YouTube, Google Maps, and, and, and so on. This zero-click kind of experience is convenient. As a consumer company, you never want to fight convenience. It's just, you know, it's a losing battle. So we want to be convenient. But in this you we thought about this, like, well, how do we make that somewhat more, more equitable and fair? Is like, well, the rest of the internet kind of needs to be able to participate on that first page. And the only way they can is if U.com succeeds and this open platform really takes off, we have about 250 apps or so on it now. The first 20 got submitted in the last month and a half since we've launched uh, in December also last year. And so every company can kind of say, oh, here's here's my you know product. And they can either start their funnel or end their funnel right there and provide useful, interesting content and then monetize that together with us. And so we hope that that will also allow us to internationalize and so on. And you can have all kinds of apps, right? You can have a what's fun to do on a weekend in Jakarta and Indonesia, right? And like, we're never built that app, but someone in Jakarta might, and it might be the best possible answer because they have some very unique insights. And then now they can go like and add like a restaurant that they really like, or maybe that paid them as a recommendation in that app. And then that app can be incorporated both into the large language model, but also visually in the front end. That's really interesting. You said you already have 20 of these Clearly, this, this is growing and the number of users is growing very, very quickly, as you said. It's kind of interesting. It's also in the press. Like recently, I mean, search has not been in the press <laughs> in decades. Uh, recently, one of the headlines that I think caught a lot of people's attention was that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, they were retired, you know, and now they went back into the office because the search engine space is really heating up and even though Google has done so many other things, it remains the core of their money engine is search and ads. And so they're going back into the office. 
How crazy is that? Did you expect that? Them going back into the office? <laughs> I've, I've met one of them a couple of times and, you know, very nice guy. And uh, yeah, it was, it's surprising. And I guess uh, it shows that indeed the, the space is heating up. We see some very large companies kind of copying some of our features that we've launched in, in December uh, in recent weeks. And and yeah, it's in, in many ways, it's a positive because the status quo was kind of the biggest struggle for us as a startup, right? We built a lot of cool technologies, large language models to generate essays for you, to write code for you, to generate images for you. And each case we got, you know, like we grew fine. It's like sort of double digit, mid double digit percentages every month. But for a lot of users, they just didn't even think about their, their search engine. And it's just the, the power of defaults in that consumer space is extremely strong. Like for a lot of people, and you have to kind of acknowledge that even as much as I love search engines, there's some people, they look like once a week for like Ford 150 or something, and that's it. They don't really care about the search engine. It's kind of like a utility, you know, if it's not there, it sucks. But if you get your water and electricity from somewhere, you don't really care very much about it. That is the reality for some set of users. And so for a while, we actually had to focus and said, you know, let's make it really good for developers. So we have all these developer apps that Beaks for Geeks and, you know, Hugging Face and like different models and code generations and Kubernetes generation and regular expression generation. So if you search for that, like how to make, you know, find an email with a regular expression, boom, you got an AI that just like writes whatever regular expression you want, which is like an annoying thing for a lot of people. We had all these features. And, you know, we're growing fine, but not that much. And and now the biggest thing, which is actually largely thanks to, to ChatGPT from OpenAI, and we have to give them credit for it, they had this brilliant marketing and also brilliant like technology and scale of large language models plus fine tuning and really pushed existing technology over certain thresholds to inspire a lot of people. And especially for search, kind of it allowed us as a search engine company, as well as our users to kind of rethink. Before that, when we tried to innovate a little too far away from Google, people are like, oh, it's too different from Google. I don't like it. But now all of a sudden it's okay to be just different from Google. And that opens up a whole host of, of exciting innovation in the space. It's very interesting how a big part of it is also cultural, what people are ready for or not ready for at any given time. Very true. Um, now, zooming out for a moment. At the core of what you are building are very large neural networks that absorb a ton of information from the internet, both text and possibly non-textual information. And that can, in addition, look at new information based on the search and summarize that and bring that to the fore. So this is, I mean, if you think about AI, this seems like quite up there in terms of, you know, an AI that can bring the whole knowledge of the internet in a conversation to you. What people talk about in some sense, the end game or like the ultimate goal in AI is AGI, artificial general intelligence. What's the gap from where you chat, let's say, is today to something that would qualify as an AGI? Boy, I, I feel somewhat uh, flattered that we start from, from you chat and then go, but it is, it is still a big step up. It's kind of interesting. Uh, one thing that has changed in a lot of people's minds for AGI is that it doesn't have to be physical anymore. So that's been a big change. It used to be, it has to be like a physical robot that really looks like a human and walks around and stuff. 
And a lot of people are like, well, you know, we, we can be intelligently behaving and communicating online only. So that, that's, that's helpful for this particular gap between WeChat and EGI. But I think there are, man, there's so many ways to answer this question. Maybe at a very high level, I think there are still a lot of barriers to EGI is working on. And this is independent of anything you chat, sort of putting more of my, my academic and, and sort of uh, research hat on. I think there, uh, I'll mention just three barriers that I feel like because we have made very little progress on them, it's fairly clear to me that we're not going to get to AGI until we make progress on at least those three, probably more. One is the combination of statistical correlation-based fuzzy kinds of reasoning, like image classification, you have a lot of pixels, you try to find good correlations and features, and it's all kind of continuous. And, you know, I include language generations for a lot of words in there, but not all of it language generation. With logical, mathematical, set-based, discrete kind of reasoning. The merging of these two has not really been figured out, right? Like you have models, you can ask the model, like any model, including UChat, a large enough complex multiplication question. And uh, despite making billions of floating point multiplications in the process of generating that answer, they can still not do simple arithmetic and so on. So I think there's, there's this gap. And I think the most likely way you could work on that gap is if you enable these large language models to actually code themselves. I think it's a really exciting idea. You give them access to a Python interpreter and you train them to program an answer if they cannot come up with the answer by just thinking about it and generating the next token. So that's one. And that one comes with a path of sorts, uh, one potential path that if I could do pure research maybe as a sabbatical or something in, in a decade, I would love to hack on that. Hopefully someone has done it before that, maybe someone in distance right now. Then the second one is the idea that you need to be allowed. If you're considered intelligent, I think you need to have some way of creating your own objective functions. So in AI right now, and then sorry, this might bore some of the experts here, but in AI right now, Every model is trained with a particular objective function. The objective functions for these amazing large language models is predict the next token, which is a sequence of characters. It might be a word, might not be a word, might just be you know, a sequence of characters and making a really, really good prediction of what that next set of characters is and then just generating that. It can't do anything else, right? And an image classifier that's trained on like cats versus dogs will only classify cats versus dogs. There's no set of uh, intrinsic motivations or goals that you can have as an algorithm and then actually choose to do something else. <laughs> Whereas uh, humans, which, you know, is not the only way you could get to intelligence. You can build airplanes and they don't have to fly like birds. It's like you can build AGI that isn't at all like human intelligence, same as with this, you know, Python uh, environment. You can come up with these answers in a different way to people. But, you know, humans are start their journey in life with like a sort of almost pre-genetically pre-wired sequence of objective functions. And, you know, in the beginning, you just want to be able to move around. You want to get attention, you know, things that help you survive. And at some point in your life, you want an iPad. <laughs> and it's like, and, and, and you want to get a job, hopefully, and like all of these things. And so 
it's like where and how do you select that? You know, and there's sort of these long-term motivations of survival, right? Like if you did, like if you didn't reproduce at all and you didn't want to eat and you didn't want to move around, you'd just be gone and you're out of the gene pool and hence like that's been selected out. And so like humans have these biological necessities for their objective functions that somehow are, you know, somewhere keep be correlated at some point with an iPad or whatever other toy you might want. But AI doesn't have to have that, right? AI doesn't have the biological constraints. It doesn't have to fight for like limited resources against other people. Um, it, it doesn't like biologically have to reproduce. It can just copy code or whatever. And it could be connected to a solar panel and have unlimited energy to exist. And so there's a question like, if you're that comfortable, <laughs> what, what are you, what are you trying to still do? And does it make sense for humans to kind of have that sequence of increasingly complex objective functions implemented into the AI and, and allow it to eventually branch out and select its own objective functions. Anyway, this is kind of an AGI question and, and I think roadblock that no one's even working on properly. And then the third one is multitask learning, which I think we have also made significant progress on, but we still have a long way to go to get a single model to do a lot of different tasks. Despite you know, all this excitement in, in large language models, the best translation models, I think, are still models trained specifically for translation. And I think we can probably get that with the models being large enough and there being enough training data for one modality. But ultimately, we have one brain and you don't have a purely visual brain and then a purely textual brain and a purely motor cortex brain. And so you have different, you know, visual cortex, motor cortex, but even language is, isn't like in one area of the brain. Language, you can close your eyes, think about running, and part of your motor cortex will fire too. And you can close your eyes and think about, you know, the color red and, and parts of your visual cortex can fire too. You dream while everything fires. So language, I think, is the most interesting manifestation of human intelligence. And hence, I, you know, I'm biased. Also, the most interesting sort of AI sub area because it kind of connects everything else like culture, history, knowledge, thought, but also you can talk about running and working and motor cortex stuff. And you can talk about the visual world, of course, but you can also clearly be intelligent, you know, and be blind. So it's not, you know, and, and maybe like death, right? And so you can, there are all kinds of different ways. And I'm not saying there's a necessary requirements, but they're all connected in language. And so ultimately the third big barrier for AGI is this sort of multitask learning across different modalities. And I'm actually pretty excited. I think next couple of years, we'll see, we'll see a lot of progress on at least the first and the third of these roadblocks. You know, we're going to see models generate videos with sound. That'll be very interesting when that happens and different modalities, music. I think the same explosion in creativity that we've seen in the visual world, we will see in the musical world very soon where you can connect. And there's actually a cool paper again from I think this Google research that made another big like step function and improvements for music generation. And yeah, I'm just very excited about all of that. And it's a tough thing to talk about because on the one hand, there's so much progress in the last couple like years, in the last decades. And so it feels like we're at the beginning of this exponential. But then I think Despite being at the beginning of this very exciting exponential curve across many dimensions of model sizes and data set sizes and capabilities and some fuzzy definition along some spectrum of that, 
it's unclear if that uh, exponential will keep on going, you know, and like higher and higher. And most of the time in history, when you had such an exponential technology progress, they flatten out. And then, you know, not many interesting things happen, like slight. We went from like the very first ever motorized flight. And then like a decade or two later, people are flying loopings with machine guns and heavy like planes. And if you extrapolate it from the first human to ever have motorized flight to like that, and then you kept on that exponential growth and technology capabilities, we would be having like little weekends on the moon or something to check out the view. But like not none of that happened. We still don't have flying cars, making some progress on that, but it, it just completely flattened out. Now, a lot of these past exponentials were in the physical world. AI is in the digital world, but in the end, it also has some substrates on you know GPUs and, and, and hardware. But it is more digital if we could keep that exponential longer, and hence we might be able to get to AGI more quickly. But until people work on those three and make some major progress and actually want to work on it, you know, I think depending on the definition of AGI, it will take longer. Now, again, and this is sorry, this is like a long-winded answer to your question, but depending on how you define AGI, maybe we can get there earlier. So some people define it as just a good double-digit percentage of jobs can be automated either completely or to their own specific percentages by an AI. And that is already kind of AGI. And in that sense, I think we'll get there sooner in the sense that you know already various jobs are, are getting majorly automated and one person could now create a ton more outputs in recruiting or in designing and, and illustrating or in market copy generation and writing and so on. So in that sense, we're, we're making a lot more progress on it. Anyway, I'll, I'll try to end there. It's, a, it's somewhat of a leading question. I could talk about it for another hour or two. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I like that you essentially put some really exciting research directions forward. I mean, if I can recap them in my words, and like the first one is going beyond statistical generalization, having actual reasoning that's being used, whether it's incarnated as a computer program or in other ways, true reasoning to help generalize better. Second one is to not be dependent on one specific objective function that's set for you, but understanding that you might need to set your own objective functions. And that's kind of something that's not typically done at all. It's a little bit done in reinforcement learning with the exploration type objective functions, but it's obviously not at the level that uh, you're talking about where you want to be. And then the third one, multitask is probably the, the one that's most visibly happening in many places and where the, there's a lot of progress left. But indeed, a single model to do to do everything seems like, you know, generalizing from, you know, I imagine a model that can visually read text, which is starting to happen, or visually write text and connect that under the hood with the fact that this is also, you know, can be predicted with a language model, just need to remember the right font to visually generate the next thing and so forth. I think there's some really exciting um, research directions here. Now, one of the things, Richard, that I've always found very intriguing in conversations with you and just following your trajectory is, I think you're often seeing things before other people see it. We talked about the Decathlon paper earlier, a single language model to do many language tasks. People were surprised that that was even considered and were telling you, well, 
we're going to reject the paper because I can train 10 separate models. Why not just in now? Nobody would say that anymore. Everybody's like, why would you use more than one model? Just one gigantic model is the only thing to do. The thing that also really stands out to me is, let's go back to the early deep learning days. And I'd like to learn more about your motivation, how you came about this, you know, putting your time where you put it. In the early deep learning days, Jeff Hinton, who of course has been on the podcast and his students showing that deep neural nets are superior in image recognition, in speech recognition. Many people before that happened were doubting that deep learning would succeed at anything anytime soon or ever, but they all changed their mind and said, right, makes sense in hindsight. Continuous signal processing like visual and speech information, backpropagation is how you train neural nets as a continuous process. I guess we should have seen this coming as people are saying, it's, it's obvious now, you know. And even though they would say that, in the same breath, they would say, but it's just for speech and vision and things like that that are continuous. Language is so different. It's discrete tokens. We need to study hardcore linguistics to make progress on language. We need to introduce concepts like grammars and so forth into the system to make real progress on language. And in that time, you were one of I mean, very few people. There was also Yoshua Benjo at the time, obviously, with some of his students, but it was just like almost nobody was saying, actually, it should also work for language. What made you believe this and put your effort there? Because, I mean, if it hadn't succeeded, <laughs> it would have been pretty painful, probably. Yeah, I literally said to Chris when I pitched this to him, it's going to be high variance. Like, is either going to, like, my PhD will be completely irrelevant and, and I'll just have to get another job of sorts. Or, and at the time, I wanted to be a professor. I didn't want it to be irrelevant, obviously. Or, you know, we're going to really convince some people. And this, this is a major new direction for the field. The way it happened, and it's just still so surprising me vividly on my mind, you know, I, I just arrived at Stanford. I had done linguistic computer science in undergrad and I'd taken a ton of linguistics classes, morphology, syntax, semantics, formal semantics, logical semantics, like phonology, phonetics, like uh, you name it. My, I loved the most formal semantics in terms of the linguistics. And then I did a bunch of computer science and math. But in my bachelor's, I was became a little bit disappointed with, with the field of NLP because I saw these linguistics and their ideas were like very hard to scale. You know, they thought about when you say things like at this one seminar on metonymies and metaphors and, and how to map them into formal semantics. And, you know, they thought about, oh, you strong like a lion. So you kind of take the properties of the lion and then you project them onto the he. And, and that's how you kind of try to interpret that sentence in a formal semantic kind of way. And I like those ideas, but they were very clearly going to be hard to scale. Um, and so I thought maybe we need to enlist all the different properties of like different words. And that was kind of my early bachelor thesis. But then it just felt like, man, like it's never going to really get us there. And it feels like I'm designing a bunch of manual features that maybe could be used somewhere down the line. And so I kind of got this like less motivated. And then my master's and this undergrad was in Leipzig, master's was in Zerbergen at the Max Planck Institute there. In my master's, I switched to computer vision, partially because I felt like it had more math in it, and it just felt like I was learning more general principles. And then I took a class on statistical machine learning, 
And and that was it. I was like, this this is clearly like so much more generalizable. And for the first time, I felt like at the time I was, you know, I'd just come out of uh, France. I was studying there for years. So I spoke French and I was like, oh, it'd be cool if I could speak Chinese too. So I started learning Chinese. And then I took this statistical machine learning class and and I had this epiphany where I, was, where I thought, man, I could use this statistical machine learning stuff and eventually apply it to natural language processing and have an AI learn how to translate, I could have so much more impact in the world than if I learned Chinese and Japanese and like five other languages. Like the world doesn't benefit at all if I learn another five foreign languages. It's, it's great for me personally. It's really fun to talk to different people and, and their, their mother tongue, but the world benefits very little. And so I, I decided to stop learning foreign languages, you know, I, you know, I'm German, uh, studied like in France and spoke a little Chinese and almost speak English. So like, I, I was like, let's stop learning foreign languages. And I was actually not that good. In my first statistical machine learning class, there's just a ton of somewhat funny enough to one area, linear algebra, I was like, not like, didn't do as much in the past. And there's a ton of requirements for that class that I didn't have. So I wanted to take the class. Long story short, you know, I did find the class, but I was just like, I was hooked. I thought this is hard. But if I can solve and learn about statistical machine learning, it just became obvious to me, if you get really good at that, you can apply it to so many different things, biology and medicine and language and vision, everything. So I became just super excited, started you know studying a lot at the time in terms of kernel methods and reproducing kernel algorithm spaces. Anyway, so with all of that knowledge, I came after a few years at Princeton, I came to Stanford and now I was working with Chris Manning and I was chatting with some of the PhD students in the group. And, you know, as a first year PhD, you kind of work with some of the senior PhD students and, and try to be helpful there. And, and, and I looked at the papers and read the papers and, and they asked me to, to implement some things. And so I was looking at this paper and at the time I was using conditional random fields, uh, which I'm sure you know, and young, younger AI researchers, these are all like these times, these days, like don't know these models at all anymore. But there's a very large, beautiful sort of probabilistic distribution over, I don't know, it takes too long to really explain, but as an old model, and this model basically at the very deep bottom of it required a lot of features. And, and so this PhD student, she was working on like defining, oh, this word is capitalized and this word is all caps. And this word is in a list of lists of names of cities. And because we had a perfect string match for that list of cities, you know, it's more likely a city, but not always, right? You can have Paris and it could be Paris Hilton or Paris in France. And so you you kind of add all these features. And and I've, I saw that and I was like, man, this sort of reminds me of the time of bachelors where we're just like enumerating these like manually defined features and trying to map them and learn some weights on them. But it's it's not going to, it just felt like graduates doing descent and not, you know, stochastic gradient descent of, of the AI. And so, you know, at, as a first year you have, and this is kind of magical as a PhD student, right? You have this freedom, like you don't have to produce value right away. You're still allowed to learn and take classes and, and explore creatively what you want to do with your life and, and with your research and what directions you want to take. So I was obviously listening to everyone else in the department also, and Andrani, our, both of our former advisors, uh, he was getting really deep into like deep learning at the time. And uh, he basically moved everyone in the lab to stop knowing what they're doing or let them finish it for their PhD and focus on deep learning. And he was working on computer vision exclusively for when it came to deep learning. And actually, 
I take that back. I think he also tried some other things in, in speech recognition at the time and some other applications. But the vast majority was computer vision. And so I was chatting with other PhD students, Kwok uh, Le at the time, uh, and Nyam uh, and Andrew Moss, about you know what they were doing and learning for, for computer vision. And I just thought, man, there has to be some way. And the way they described it, I guess, was uh, main insight was we can learn the features. You don't have to manually curate the features anymore. And I was like, that, that's what I want to do in NLT. But then none of their stuff worked, right? It's all just like you start with pixels, they make sense, they give you some signal and, and words are like, well, how do you map the words? So I uh, kind of thought about it for a while. And then I found one paper and I think it's the only, I think, really relevant paper before my work in deep learning for NLP. And that was by Colbert and Weston, Juan Colbert and Jason Weston. They also had a paper about neural networks for natural language processing. And the way they did it was they just looked at windows of, you know, five or six words. And so they didn't have to deal with all the complexity of variable length sentences and variable length inputs by just saying, let's just do sequence level tasks where you classify a word based on, you know, three words to the left, three words to the right. You have some zero padding. And, and you know, like while I don't think that was the right set of exact models, it introduced the idea of like, let's just keep the words as vectors. And then we can backpropagate into these vectors, whatever tasks they have. And if you backpropagate enough that this is a city and so on, then these vectors will start to learn things. And that was enough for me to sort of be like, I think I can use those ideas, but then I needed to make them more palatable and viable for all the linguists and NLT conferences and natural language processing our community and basically ended up using a model, which is tree structures, grammar structures, syntactic trees or DAGs directed as the grasp and combine that idea with neural networks so that the model can deal with variable length inputs and still backpropagate everything. And then once everything was a vector, you can do all kinds of tasks. And then I still remember the early days I had first paper I submitted was on parsing to get the tree structure in the first place. And then on sentiment analysis. And it was so beautiful because there's this tons of line people who worked on sentiment analysis, this long line of research of like, these are positive words, negative words. Here's like some negation feature and some ways to do regular expressions to extract negations. And my model at some point learned all of these things by itself. And I was so excited. And then the paper got rejected and I was like, a lot. And like, it, it's like basically got to like the same performance as all the feature engineering before in like a few weeks, like else of that project or months in total and like, like a couple of days of training. And I was like, it's so much better, but people didn't care that we learned all the features. They already manually curated them and their career dependent on them continuing to be relevant. And so then we created a larger data set because I knew it's like, man, if you just have more data, then the model can actually better than everything that like other people had been doing. And then we got a larger data set. And then we, it was just like undeniably better, like by 10% for that task. And then I was hoping to get into the main conference session or at least in the machine learning session. But because all the machine learning people are still hating on neural nets, um, I only got to put into the small subsection for sentiment analysis folks. And I'm like, guys, this can do like the, the classification label to anything. It doesn't have to be just sentiment. Anyway, long story short, you know, that was kind of the last paper where people didn't quite get it. And then we just did like task after task. And then other people started joining 
And then instead of recurrent, sorry, instead of recursive neural nets, uh, which aren't as nicely paralyzable, we started and, and like Quark and others uh, and Vilia, I think too, had a, the sequence to sequence model where instead of recursive neural nets, you use recurrent neural nets. There are a subset where it's always just left to right. And that improves things a ton. And at that point, like there's so much excitement in the ML community starting around neural nets that then the NLP community kind of just started to get the fact that it's not just sentiment, it's not just parsing, it's not just this, it's really everything. But by the end of the PhD, you know, it worked out pretty well. I won Best Computer Science Thesis Award, but it still felt like no one was teaching this stuff. And so despite starting a job in MetaMind, I ended up teaching like the first neural net for NLP class in the world, as far as I know, because yeah, still no one was teaching it. But then after four years of doing that, everyone was teaching neural nets for NLP. And then it's kind of a mission. And that was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> it's great. I, I, love, I love the full story, Richard. It's amazing. Now, you mentioned... MetaMind, and I want to ask you a question about that. And I think it's a, another example of seeing things before other people see things. When you finished your PhD, you had top tier universities offering you professor positions. That would have been the natural route. Probably the route you would have, if you had decided the first day of your PhD what you're going to do, you would have probably said, that's probably what I'm going to do. That, that was an I was working so hard towards for a decade of my life. Yeah. And then when the moment's there and you are essentially offered what you've been working towards, you decide there's something even more interesting you could go do. How did that play out? Like, how do you even, because at the time there were no AI startups, really. That was, that was not a thing. AI was for academia. Yeah, it's, it's true. It, like the way this kind of unfolded was that towards the end of my PhD, I got more and more folks to reach out about whether I can solve their like tasks for them, whether I could consult for them or work for them full time or, you know, some kind of capacity help them. And, you know, one, one guy actually was the first. So in the beginning, I had to say no, cause I was on an F1 student visa, but then last year of my PhD, I got this EB1A visa. So I could, and I had a green card and I could finally actually also work, not just be kind of a PhD student. And so the, my first project was this guy, Haddon, who asked if I could help him train a um, language model at the time, not, you know, he didn't say like a neural language model or, or anything like that, but just a model to predict the next lines of code for a coding editor. And so my very first project that I did as a sort of consultant on the side uh, was to imp actually implement at time a recurrent neural network trained on a bunch of codes. And I just kind of gave him that. I didn't do a phenomenal job, to be honest, because it felt like, I solved the, like, the problem was like, this is just what you have to do. Here's a neural net, you train on this code, it'll make predictions, just make it bigger, train on more code, and, and you'll be fine. Um, which unfortunately, I don't think he did. And I didn't like say, oh man, this is actually a brilliant idea. I should release really that and, and scale that model up like massively. You know, obviously that would take another almost decade or so to, uh, or at least half a decade to really sink in. That, that recurrent neural net should just spin an LSTM. It should have just been massive. And then eventually a GPU, you know, transformer model and, and all that. But, um, you know, there, the right ideas were there, but it felt like I was doing this one consulting work and, and now one group had like this algorithm. And then, you know, like a lot of very large companies kind of tried to hire me and just felt like, well, if I did just one work in one company, I'd rather be an academic 
um, because that way more people could benefit from this technology and like really bring it to a lot of more people. But then I also thought, well, if you had a company that built a platform that would let anyone just kind of drag and drop images or text documents into the browser and boom, out comes a neural net and like two lines of code in some nice Python like API, then even more people could benefit from it. And then I felt like the world was starting to, it's almost like, uh, you know, when you see an, an egg kind of split up when like in like embryo states, like the sort of it split and the, the world of AI became, got into this dual state where on the one hand, it was still a research question and this goal of getting to BGI and getting more and more powerful models. But the other state was a lot more like electricity where we figured out the fundamentals. And while sure, there's, you know, more things you could figure out on that and Ohm's law is kind of, you know, a rough approximation and like, like electricity doesn't really go through like one electron at a time of like deals and like, there's a lot of stuff, but like we figured it out well enough and the principles of it well enough that you can actually just use it for so many different things. And so it kind of, at the time, the world had transitioned into this dual state, still more research towards AGI and, and just more generalized and better capabilities, but enough to just apply it to all these different things. And so in the startup, we literally classified head CT scans for intracranial hemorrhage, brain beads, and what I think is the first FDA trial of deep learning classifier running in production actually saved like two dozen lives a week while it was running. And then we had to shut it down and then like no one wanted to really pay for it because the way we saved those lives was not monetizable according to the medical partners we were working with. It's very unfortunate. I got quite disillusioned with the medical medical field and those applications still very motivated and, and liked them a lot, but we need to have very, very deep domain expertise as well as AI expertise to make progress in that world. But uh yeah, lots of different applications. We also classified, you know, real estate images and sentiment analysis and so on. So we built this general purpose platform and it was it was a lot of fun. At the same time, I was allowed, I was, I guess, my own boss, so I could still teach also on the side at, at Stanford. And while that wasn't my main job and, you know, I didn't get paid for it, it was just like fun and still very motivated to get neural nets and this idea out into the world that they can be useful for NLP. And so... So yeah, it's just uh, kind of a little bit of both. I had some teaching, but it was only three months of the year. This honestly is enough. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but it's like it's so much work. Yeah, it's just incredibly hard to do while you're having a, another like full-time job for me. And you know, it was also fun and, and you learn learn some things. But at some point, you know, I had a very large team to do at, at Salesforce. And yeah, anyway, lots of other reasons, but like it's, it just felt like I had a little bit of teaching. I could do some research in the startup world and I could have a ton of applications um, that I could really see through. And instead of having a hypothetical impact of a, of a researcher, I have a very concrete realized impact on people through AI. And so I ended up like saying, okay, I don't like, let's not do the full-time faculty about you went into the start world full in while still doing some teaching and, of course, research. With MetaMind, you described many of the applications you were building for various customers. At some point, Salesforce comes in and says, we want AI in everything we do. I'm curious, how did they present that to you? How did, I mean, you're, you're building AI for the world. Now you're going to build it within one company. Like, How did they present it to you that it would be sufficiently exciting to you to go do that. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I actually like it felt like if you were if you had joined or if I had joined like Google or Facebook, then Google or Facebook would have had another good AI person. But Salesforce is actually as you know, it's kind of interesting. But some people are annoyed that I would assume they don't know Salesforce, and other people are annoyed to assume that I do know that they they think they know Salesforce. But there are still some academics who don't know it. So just uh, for for those who don't know. It's generally called customer relationship management software, which is basically every almost every one of the large Fortune 500 uses them to deal with all their sales, service, and marketing, among a bunch of other things. So if you call a like a call center and they need to know who you are, they look that up in a database, which is very likely Salesforce. If uh, some salesperson sends you an email about some software and they're in a large company, they're likely using Salesforce to keep track of like where you are in their sales funnel. When you get big marketing campaigns from like Coca-Cola or something, like they will likely, you know, use Salesforce to coordinate that whole marketing campaign for customers. So that's kind of just very high level for the non-experts to do. And sorry for bot, like boring a bunch of people who, who know them. But what's interesting with them is that they have other companies as their customers. So that platform dream I had was actually staying very much a lot. Like we built the ability to build other classifiers. And so now thousands of other companies that are Salesforce customers actually can use those. And so that was also the going to be the bottleneck for MetaMind is to just build out this massive Salesforce, no pun intended, to go out and actually sell those AI classifiers and, and models. And so it felt like a really great win. Plus, we could continue and actually grow even more a pure research team and apply it and scale up both massively. And, and that just felt like a much more impact that I could have uh, within Salesforce than slowly kind of trying to grow like sales muscles in a small startup. Now, of course, a couple of years ago, you left Salesforce to found you.com. And we, we talked about you.com at the beginning. I'm curious, when you look back at your time at Salesforce, are there some highlights that, you know, you think back to them like, these are some really cool AI things that we either invented or that we managed to build into a product that really empowered many, many people to do their job in a much more interesting way. Yeah, there's so many. Like the team like that that we're able to grow there was really amazing. There's so many fun stories. We had like for for about two and a half years, we had the best language models in the world, like that were neural that use attention mechanisms to copy over words from past contexts, all of which, you know, obviously very relevant. We invented the first co-attention mechanisms. And, and I think a lot of those ideas kind of inspired transformer models and then inspired, you know, larger language models uh, and all of that. Where do I start? I guess I'll just mention four. <laughs> it's hard. To, it's good. The first one, okay, maybe five. The first one was Cove, contextual vectors. So the idea was... The more you pre-train a neural network model, the better. Like, and ideally, you have some very large pre-trained models because then they can generalize better. And we've seen that with word vectors. And to me, the word vectors were kind of the first part of a, a neural network stack. And after that comes an encoder. And after that comes a decoder that will generate some outputs for you. And it was fairly clear to me that we're going to want to eventually pre-train that whole system. From what is a word, how is a word encoded, to how is a sentence encoded, to how you actually 
encode and then decode and, and create an output. It was very clear to me that we had to pre-train all of them. And so as a first step, we wanted to pre-train an encoder in the context. And so we created Cove contextual vectors. That paper had a very short moment in the sun. We basically trained all of this on what we thought at the time were the largest data sets that were supervised. And we kind of tried to replicate the magic image net and convolutional neural networks in pre-trained language sentences. And so the la largest data sets for sentences were translation. There's actually like many, many millions of translation here. There were this sentence in French, in German, in Spanish, and whatnot. European Union translates all their proceedings and so on. Tons of translation data sets. It was the ImageNet equivalent for NLP, so I thought. And so we trained this massive encoder for a bunch of different languages, and we showed that it improved across a dozen different tasks, all the performance. After a few months after that came out, one paper made a very crucial but exciting change. And that is, instead of predicting the words in another language, you just predict the next word of that language. AKA, instead of translation, you predict the next word, which is language modeling, sort of in the specific terminology. And so that paper, paper I think, was called Elmo. Um, and they were, you know, used, they decided our paper a lot, which was great, but, and then they used a lot of the same tasks and they showed it works another two or 3% better across another like a dozen tasks. That paper just blew up and became even more relevant and eventually became BERT, where the difference there was instead of training LSTM, you trained transformer network and just like it became even bigger and pre-trained even more. But that model, which is done by Fine McCann, my co-founder at DQ.com, kind of started a lot of that kind of thinking. And so like, okay, that kind of worked. It was cool. The paper had a lot of impact on sort of the on the academic world, but it had such a short moment uh, before Elmo already made it even better that it didn't get quite that much popularity. And then we did it again with DECA NLP. So we thought, okay, well, now that everyone agrees that we should pre-train not just words, not just encoders, but also decoders, or sorry, like on, on the encoders, let's also do it decoders. And so we wanted to train a single model that was pre-trained with a bunch of the 10 hardest NLP tasks we could find, such as you know, translation and summarization and question answering and sentiment analysis and you name it. And we wanted to pre-train the whole model. And there we did, again, like one fully trained encoder but also say decoder and the encoder would basically have a question. And instead of saying this model only does this one task, an input to the model was a question. And the question could be what's the translation into French? What's the summary? Who is the president in this paragraph? And so on. And, and that paper is called DECA NLP. And that I, I was told by some of the founding members of, of OpenAI actually inspired them to say, oh, we should maybe train GPT-2 and try to make a single model for all of NLP. It looks like these guys have been able to do it. But again, and you know, like the big change was they use language modeling as a pre-training. And then instead of having two encoders, one for the input and one for the question that also defines the task, it's just all one encoder and you just concatenate them rather than kind of having two encoders that we run separately. It's a minor difference. But the biggest difference was instead of pre-training on 10 different tasks, you pre-train on language models on just predicting the next word again. And so, so that work was also, I think, ultimately very impactful. 
didn't fight quite as many citations either uh, as as I'd hoped, but ultimately, like I was just very impressed. It was also when I kind of just really appreciated Brian McCann, my co-founder and CTO at U.Tom. Like I had pitched that idea, we called it the the Epic Triple before, where I tried to do three different tasks, and I had pitched that to so many really smart people. Even in my early Stanford days, no one wanted to do it, and I was at the time already managing too many things. I couldn't implement it myself. No one wanted to build a single model for all 10 of the hardest NLP tests. It took you three or four months to just do all the pre-processing and data preparation and all of that. And then Brian is like, that sounds really impactful. Let's do it. And then after a year of super hard work, actually got the whole system to run. The model had like state-of-the-art performance on a bunch of the tasks, but not on all 10 of them. And that's why it's got rejected. <laughs> but anyway, so those are the first two. And then Maybe just a few more. One is the AI economist. We're thinking about, okay, how do we have a lot of impact on a field that hasn't had much impact on the AI? And, you know, at the time already, like we're now deep in like AI excitement, autonomous usage, open AI is already out there, deep minds, playing games and a bunch of other cool stuff. So like, and we're thought like somehow that entire field of economics, which is so important for the world and like how we get taxed, like how much how to run people and governments and so on, um, like has no impact on like AI has had no impact. And and you look at the models they use and they're like provably correct in a one-step economy where no one ever learns, no one ever adapts and you make one decision and then it's provably correct that in that one-step economy and like all these like crazy approximations that were obviously wrong in reality, but like, you know, provably nice. And so I was very excited about that AI economics paper. It basically is a two-level reinforcement learning model that lets a bunch of agents maximize their own utilities and collect resources, build houses, block other agents, and maximize you know, selfishly what they want. And you have another AI agent that basically optimizes the taxation and subsidies of all the other agents. Uh, and so that AI economist basically needs to adapt. And when it adapts the taxes, then the objective function changes for all the other little agents. Um, and, and then you go back and forth. And so I think at a very fundamental level, that paper in, in the hands of the right groups could fundamentally improve humanity and some age-old philosophical questions massively, like socialism, capitalism, mixtures of social market economies, or you know, like all of these different the structures that human and then the philosophical ideas and political ideas that people have fought over for hundreds, if not thousands of years, you could just ask an AI, like just simulate a billion taxation years and come up with the best way to tax and subsidize the economy after running all of these different simulations. And then tell us what's best. And now of course, like, what's best is defined by your objective function and humans define what that objective function is. And so in our case, we said, let's have a combination of productivity of the overall economy multiplied with equality. So you don't get like some crazy dictatorship situation where like one or very few agents are super duper wealthy and everyone else is poor. And so you have some kind of equality and, but overall you want to maximize productivity of, of the economy. You can add sustainability and lots of other parts to your objective function. Every country, the politician should do that in the future. And then they can kind of let that model optimize. And my hope is at some point when politicians go out and say, oh, I support the middle class. And then you you run their 
projected or suggested changes to you know all the various levers that politicians have through the simulation, and then you run another couple of billion years, you're like, well, what you propose doesn't actually help the middle class, uh, and uh, you know, instead, how about this other system? And then you you know have humans double check it and see what what works better for the objective functions that people agree that they want to optimize in their society. So. I'll, I'll keep it short. There's one more maybe, uh, which is protein generation. It's very interesting. Recently, also, like a lot of companies have started from this. You know, we're looking at large language models. They're so powerful. At the time, it was sort of clear that we're not going to have the money to train, you know, $10 million for a single model with unclear outcomes. And so we decided what's another one where you could have a ton of impact with this same idea of large language models, but in a different domain that, again, has had no impact, no one has been working on it. And if you did solve it and make improvements on it, it could improve the state of the world massively. And that was proteins. And what's amazing is when you train these large sequence models on you know, sequences of amino acids and proteins, they learn that language too. But unlike human language, where we can look at it and we look at the samples and we're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's so amazing. It's actually in some ways even more amazing because no one understands the sequences and the AI understands them better than anyone. So we've reached, you know, superhuman intelligence on the language of protein generation already. And then we went a step further and actually synthesized those proteins in wet labs and then showed that we have new antibacterial proteins. And, you know, for, for non-biologists out there, like proteins govern everything in your life, in your body, in medicine, in disease. Everything is governed by proteins. And so if you can understand the language of proteins, you can cure so many more diseases. At, and just like with economics, I think that line of work will eventually in the next decade or two improve all of medicine massively. And so those are just a couple of the really cool projects. Great. I love that you're willing to, to make the time and, and share share the stories, Richard. I want to switch gears to a different topic, actually, investing. So... Um, AI, it's a new space, new companies are being founded. You have one of the first ones with MetaMind. You've also been an active angel investor. And recently, actually together, we started a, a venture fund in the AI space called AI Ventures. Of course, not just us, together with Chris Manning, Anthony Goldblum, the AI partners, and then several full-time partners, including Sean, of course, leading the charge on that front. Now, one thing I want to highlight is that I see the recurring pattern here. You're seeing some things before other people see them. For example, everybody knows about Hugging Face who works in AI. And if not, maybe listen to my last season episode with uh, Clément DeLong, um, who was really great on, on the podcast. And it's a very big company now. You wrote one of the earliest checks into Hugging Face. Same Athelas. In the medical space, Tanay, uh, actually, if you haven't heard of Tanay and Athelas, you can also come to the last season's episode of the podcast with him. Brilliant entrepreneur. You wrote one of the earliest checks into his company. And it's that pattern of seeing things before other people see things. And I'm, I'm curious, though, what was your first check? Like, what was the moment that you decided to write your first angel check? And how did it go from there to running a venture fund today? Yeah, um, it was uh, to a large degree, you know, I sort of came back to how do I maximize impact? You know, I had sold MetaMind and yeah, it's kind of awkward to talk about, but I, I like, I made a bunch of money 
and I still had my grad student lifestyle and, you know, I hadn't really fully grown out of like being grad students. And, you know, I lived in the same small apartment. Uh, I didn't really need any Lamborghinis or whatever. And so I had all this money and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I had all these incredible, smart people in my community. And, you know, Tanae was an intern twice with me. He was the only high schooler I ever worked with while I was at Stanford. Usually high schoolers, you know, they can be very motivated, but they don't usually produce much research output that you can really use. But it was just so smart and it made sense to, to work with him. And then again, he was an intern at MetaMind. And, and again, just like very impressive. So when he said he wants to start a company, it was very clear that I should, you know, give him money to help and, and see how, any way I could help with that. And then the Hiding Face founder was also actually one of the students in my class. I figured it remotely, asked a bunch of really good questions. He wasn't at Stanford, but I, you know, for a while I was just putting all my videos up on YouTube, but still Stanford shut me down. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually I think we made it more official. Uh, and, and so it was just very impressed. I was very impressed with him. And, you know, he also saw when it was one of my first deep learning classes. And, you know, if you have a full-time job and you're trying to teach a class and no one has ever taught a class like it, and the startups are stressful too. At the time, it was like MetaMind, right? Like, so not like a big company. It was quite stressful. And I don't think I was like the best, you know, professor and teacher I, I could possibly be. It was time constraints. But I was motivated enough and I tried like to work a lot of nights and weekends to like compare the first ever lecture notes on on this material. And so despite the class being, you know, rough around the edges, it, you know, like attracted some really smart people, including Hugging Face founders. And, you know, it was mostly remote because uh, they were living in New York, I think, at the time. But yeah, I was super smart. So when they said, hey, we want to build, you know, or we are building this, this chatbot, of friends that, among other things, will send you hugging face emojis and, and be very motivating. I thought, you know, it could be kind of like her and NLP will make good, like we're making so much progress in NLP. And I was very bullish still of, of pushing deep learning for NLP in all kinds of different ways and, and seeing that technology at positive impact. And the founders were super smart and, you know, had done well in the class and everything. I thought that those are the kinds of people that I would love to support. And invested in them and then kept investing. And then, of course, they had uh, this massively successful and smart pivot the way from the pure chatbot application to everyone actually loves the technology that we're building there and became, you know, what Hugging Face is today. And so that kept continuing. I kept seeing smart friends doing amazing things. And I thought for a while, like, okay, well, I talked to, you know, all my friends and I've invested in the companies of my friends. So Surely, it, you know, this will like end now, but somehow the word started to spread that I helped them and helped them with hiring and some of strategy and some of like the neural nets and, and the actual, you know, technical details and sort of word had spread. And instead of it kind of slowing down, it kept increasing. And then once I wasn't working in Salesforce anymore and I could, you know, do again as, as my old boss of sorts, everything else, I thought about how can I scale this up? Unfortunately, the hours in the day don't scale beyond 24 but uh, I'm, I'm sure you wish there you were sticker too. I'm still amazed with, with all the things you're doing. It's so impressive. But um, you know, the, the best way to scale something is to find other smart people and motivate them, and then work together with them. And so, you know, I thought about all the smartest friends I've had in, in AI and people I've learned from and, and continue to learn from, and and so on. And so, yeah, got to got the chance to to work with you and Chris and, and others, and, and yeah. Suchi and Anthony Goldblum. And, and yeah, we have this amazing full-time team with Bianca and Sang and, and Sean. 
And yeah, it's been actually super fun. You know, in some ways I got to spend some more time on seeing interesting things, but I don't have to do any of the paperwork anymore and like any of the tough due diligence and double clicking. And, you know, sometimes in the beginning as an angel investor, you know, I shot a little bit from the hip. I'm like, this makes high level sense. It's a smart team. I'm sure they'll figure it out. Right. And so, but then, you know, now we have a whole team that does the proper due diligence that you should be doing as you're investing larger checks. And Fortunately, I feel like a lot of my intuitions often come check out after after a lot of extra work. They're kind of like, yeah, other people and experts in the field also think it makes sense. And like, but yeah, it's just been super fun. And I, I feel sometimes it's almost a great excuse to talk to incredible people like you every every week about where the world is going and seeing seeing kind of interesting ideas that, you know, will will change the world in the next couple of years before most people hear about it. Yeah, I personally definitely remember you coming by here a year and a half ago and we're having lunch or dinner at home here and we're, we're talking about, you know, angel investing and how it's such a high impact activity that with a small amount of time, you can help a founder or an early hire at those companies so much with the things they're doing, but there's a lot of overhead <laughs> And with, you know, on the logistics and, you know, all the contracts you sign and all the things to track and so forth. And what if we could just focus on, on the fun part, helping the founders and finding the great founders. And he proposed a solution of starting a fund together. I'm like, wow, Richard, <laughs> we don't have enough we're doing yet, but, but it, yeah. it definitely intrigued me. And here we are, I guess. It is I'm really enjoying it too. I'm even wearing the t-shirt, AI Expenditures. So okay. yeah. <laughs> it's one of the few cases where I feel like we, we've done it well, where we're not necessarily spending more overall time, but we're spending the time more wisely and, and it's actually more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful to have have the right team in place to, to each of us get to spend the time where each of us is best uh, positioned to spend and most enjoys spending the time. And just like you, just uh, every week, just getting the whole team together to discuss, you know, the latest we've seen, heard, or thinking about. It's just fun while being productive. So what else What else to ask for? <laughs> um, now, talk about AI startups. I'm curious, do you see some trends, some, some areas where you see startups emerging or that you think will emerge in the foreseeable future that will maybe not just be money makers if we invest in them, but that will really impact people's lives. Yeah, so many. I think that the, the beauty of AI is that, you know, it's just, it just has so many applications, right? Once you realize everything that's a process that has some input, some output, some repeatable way to collect data, you can probably optimize it with AI. You see it everywhere. And it's like, it's like a light bulb turned on and now you just, it, it's light everywhere. And so, now uh, that's just mentioning uh, a few. Uh, one is using AI to run much more efficient drug trials. So you can actually, instead of uh, having one mouse with cancer, you can have one mouse with like five or 10 cancers. Uh, and so you save a ton of mice um, and you can much more efficiently test cancer drugs. I still kind of feel bad for the mice sometimes, but like better mouse than a person. And so like you can, you can just much more efficiently deconvolve and try uh try different different cancer drugs so i think that that's a very exciting company um we have one uh, that uses ai to optimize the diet of cows turns out cow methane 
is actually a major contributor to, to greenhouse gases. It's 84 times more potent than carbon. And so you can sell carbon credits if you reduce cow methane. And so it's, it's interesting. You would think you just have to do that once, but then the cow stomachs actually keep changing and, and try to get back to that original methane level. But long story short, you can use the AI to optimize the diet of cows so they burp and fart less and are, are less fast to the planet and in some cases produce even more milk. So it's a really interesting, interesting application. We have one like an AI hearing aid that filters out voice from background noise, which you know a lot of people have. It's called King Kopetsky syndrome, a party hearing disability, or the cocktail hearing or, or something. The official name is King Kopetsky syndrome, but basically it's the inability to filter out voice from background noise, which is different to just being hard of hearing. And so like the, the AI hearing aid kind of filters out the voice from background noise. Then we have, of course, like companies like Weights and Biases too, you're, you're just making the whole stack more amazing and easier to, to work with. I think at a very high level, there's sort of two types of AI companies. There are the horizontal ones that make the software 2.0 stack more easy to work with or more, more comfortable and, and more efficient. And so for you know, there are going to be a few big winners in that space. But then you're going to have uh, like maybe a few dozen. But then you're going to have thousands of different vertical companies sitting on top of that new software 2.0 stack that just look at one vertical and then optimize for that. Just recently, we had MoonApp start, actually started by my wife, you know, which uses AI to improve recruiting and tons of computable processes, like looking at people, knowing what kinds of skills are similar to other skills, reaching out to candidates, like providing support, finding candidates that might not be as obvious to others, but actually have the skills and the AI can kind of find uh, folks with those skills. But yeah, the, the list is very long. I'm very, very motivated by a lot of these. You know, we have the, like Eliza Dolls, uh, it's like a programmable doll. Um, uh, also, with, like interesting AI teachers. Um, and yeah, the list, the list goes on. It's a very exciting list. And now, Richard, if I can ask you one more question, you're very busy, obviously, <laughs> doing so many things. Do you ever relax? And what do you do to get your mind off of things? <laughs> it is it is indeed a, a crazy busy time, especially these last couple of weeks uh, we've come and uh, so many people kind of enjoying the invigorated search area. I have a few things. Uh, one, I try to I try to work out uh, at least once a week. Um, and it was Murph workouts where you run a mile, you can go 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, you run another mile. And you try to do the whole workout in less than 50 minutes. I once saw this fateful YouTube video and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could do that. The answer was I couldn't. It took me like five months to train up to, especially the pull-ups. But, but yeah, so that that's good. Kind of takes a lot of wind out of your sails after you're done with it. Because it's like you have to push yourself really hard. I finish it in 50 minutes. And you're supposed to also wear 20-pound body armor or like vest or something. I, I now wear like a 12 pound backpack for everything except the last 50 push up pull ups. I just can't, like, it's just so hard already. It's hard, it's so hard to do extra weight. The other workout and then a paramotor. I love paramotoring. That's actually, for those of you who see the video, there's a, a wing lying in, in the back of my office here. It's a beautiful sport that combines really well with photography. So, shameless plug, Richard underscore explores my Instagram. Um, Hashtag subscribe or whatever. And uh, I know that you care. Uh, it's not my main work, but I, I do love photography. And paramotoring allows you to have these really unique 
and novel viewpoints on the world, on the nature and this beautiful planet that, that we have here. And uh, it's an epic adventure. You can paramotor camp and fly in the middle of nowhere in the desert, camp out there and fly back the next morning. Yeah, tons of adventures you can go on and find through Iceland, through glaciers and valleys. Uh, it's it's such an epic thing. And in a relatively short amount of time, you can uh, get fairly good at it uh, and and experience the world in, in such a novel way. It's just, yeah, it's really, really special to me. Uh, and I, I love the community and, and the photography of it all and the adventure. Um, and then uh, once in a while, I play, I play a computer game called Zero AD. Um, it's like a real-time strategy game. Kind of sucks you inside, so try not to do it too often. But, uh, you know, they're all kind of wastes of time, but they're more fun. But at least in paramotoring, you know, you have the photography and then you can share the photography and motivate others to get outside and it's a little more fun. So the gaming is, but you know, in the middle of a game or in the middle of a flight, you're really only thinking about that that thing. And it's, it's good to take your mind off of it because otherwise... Yeah, I just be working every day until like 1 or 2 a.m. Well, I mean, I don't think they're necessarily a waste of time because, as you said earlier, sometimes you push things so hard for so long, you can get in a local optimum and just stepping away from it. And it seems like the Murph workout is <laughs> definitely gets you away from everything to get through that. Yeah. The paramotoring, I mean, your life is at stake. If you're not careful, you'll right. fly into a ma mountainside or something. <laughs> so... By the way, I love all the pictures from that. I'm, I'm going to link the Instagram, your Instagram uh, where we post our episode because I know I'm not alone. Many people love your pictures that you take. They're from viewpoints you otherwise don't get. I mean, planes are too high compared to what you do. And if you're on the ground, well, you're also in a different spot than where you are. I think it's it's really amazing. I remember the video with wild horses in the, in the canyon as one of my favorites. Yeah. Definitely going to link that. Richard, thank you so much for for making the time. Really appreciate it. Very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye.